You're listening to HIV Frontlines, the Body Pros podcast series focusing on resource-poor areas throughout the world. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. Hello and welcome. This is Bonnie Goldman. With all the news about the terrible earthquake in Haiti, and as we learn more about how awful conditions in Haiti were before the earthquake, it's easy to forget that there are other countries in the Caribbean that are struggling. When you think, for instance, of the island of Jamaica, what immediately comes to mind are white sand beaches, sunny skies, and lilting accents. What doesn't come to mind is an extraordinarily violent place with substandard medical care and HIV run rampant. But the reality is that Jamaica has deep underlying problems, and HIV is just one of them. Although the Jamaica's general population's HIV rate is estimated at 1.4%, the gay community's HIV rate is an astonishing 32%. And this appallingly high rate may be somewhat related to a deep and dangerous homophobia, which puts anyone who's gay at grave risk. Gay Jamaican activists even have been murdered. In fact, in 2004, Human Rights Watch released a searing report called Hated to Death. It examined homophobia, violence, and Jamaica's HIV-AIDS epidemic. To find out more about the situation in Jamaica, I spoke with poet Kwame Daz, who grew up in Jamaica. In 2007, he traveled to Jamaica, where he looked at how HIV-AIDS has shaped the lives of so many people. The result was an amazing multimedia reporting project that he helped produce called Hope, Living and Loving with HIV in Jamaica. He'll update us on the current situation in Jamaica. Also joining me is Nancy Mahan, a senior vice president at Mac Cosmetics and executive director of the Mac AIDS Fund, which has provided over $145 million to help people around the world affected by HIV AIDS. Through the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, they helped fund Kiwami's project. Welcome, Kiwami and Nancy. Thank you so much for joining me. Kiwami, could you talk a little bit about what's it like to be in Jamaica and to be gay in Jamaica and maybe HIV positive? I should start off by saying that I grew up in Jamaica. Most of my young adult life was spent in Jamaica, and I have family in Jamaica. So I'm in Jamaica five, six times a year. Jamaica is not a place that I jump into and then flee out of. Therefore, I grew up knowing many people who are gay. I also continue to have friends in Jamaica who are gay. During this particular project, I interviewed quite a number of people who are gay who are also living with HIV. There's no question about the challenges that are there. The challenges are on several fronts. The first one is the way in which the popular culture and music has repeatedly articulated very disturbing ideas about gays and, and quite violent lyrics and so on. The violence of the lyrics and the acceptance of it by certain segments of the population leaves somebody who is gay with a constant sense of anxiety about the way in which they, they're viewed and they'll be treated if they come out. So it's a kind of living threat. And there have been so many instances of violence against men who sleep with men. Yet there's another side of this thing that is, is worth paying attention to. The gay community has been far more articulate and present, and in many ways uh, radical in its resistance to the violence that has been perpetrated against them. That presence is part of a, what I believe to be a, a cultural shift that has taken place within a very conservative society. 
there are many gay people who have left Jamaica simply because it was just untenable to continue to live there comfortably and freely. That complicates issues of how we deal with HIV. If being gay becomes something that one does not want to be attached to, then there's a reluctance for those people to come out of the closet or to even just come out to be tested for HIV AIDS. And it's a hard community to then reach. That creates tremendous problems. The numbers are disturbing. Almost 30% of men who sleep with men in Jamaica are estimated to have HIV. Wow. Why do you think that the rate is so high? Is it because there's so much homophobia that gay men don't take care of themselves? Or is it that they don't have the information to take care of themselves? It's a combination of things. The rate is high because the rate has been high historically around the world. So we know that. The question is, how are we dealing with it? And how are they dealing with it as a community? One of the great things that we've seen in other parts of the world is that the gay community has been outspoken and willing to really address within itself and, of course, within the larger community, how to contend with HIV AIDS, how to practice safe sex, how to ensure that one is tested and so on. In Jamaica, because of homophobia, there's anxiety about declaring oneself to be gay. If one contracts HIV AIDS, they're suspected of being gay. That complicates the matter. As one person said in in one of the documentaries that Micah Fick did, he said he's more worried about being killed by a crowd for being gay than he is about dying of AIDS. So there's a way in which that is complicated. The other thing to remember is that we are talking about a, a country that is a relatively poor nation, and many of the people that we are dealing with are people who have issues of poverty and issues of lack of education and therefore issues that relate to the lack of knowledge. The greatest work that is done in countering HIV AIDS is within communities themselves. If you can go into those communities and then work with them to practice behaviors and patterns of protection and then, of course, testing and um, treatment, you find that you make progress. If that community is underground, it is increasingly difficult to reach. Therefore, that increases the likelihood of, of, of these high rates. Could you explain the realities of the criminalization of homosexuality? Is there a culture of fear? Do people turn in other people? Is it like prostitution in America, which is prevalent and robust, and just a few people get arrested now and again? No, no. I should say very quickly that the criminalization of homosexuality is you're not dealing largely with the state arresting people because they're gay. This is not what is happening. It's on the books, and it's on the books in so many countries. It's in the books in in the United States of America. The sodomy laws are on the books as well. What happens is that because it remains criminalized, there is a culture that says that it is validly a negative thing, an immoral thing. But there are very few cases, except cases in which one is trying to persecute somebody on another front and then to use this as the means to persecute them, that somebody is is so-called turned in or arrested and so on. I think the gay person is not worried about being arrested for homosexual practices. The, The gay person is more worried about not being protected from violence against them by the community because the police may be complicit in the violence that is enacted against them. So we are not talking about a kind of police state in which you turn in gay people and so on. That's not what's happening in Jamaica. People who are gay in Jamaica, in many ways, are known to be gay. What they do fear is that 
in certain volatile situations or in certain situations of vulnerability, they may be attacked for this, even here in the United States. There is far more openness to homosexual behavior, certainly, than in Jamaica. But this, the kind of anxiety about who do you tell or what streets do you go on holding hands and so on, those anxieties we are familiar with. And, and I think they are also the, the anxieties that we see in Jamaica. I think also, just as by way of background, over 80 countries worldwide do have anti-sodomy laws. Certainly, overturning the anti-sodomy law would not cure the problem, but certainly it creates a perception that the government condones anti-gay violence. And as Kwame said, that there would be no recourse if you were to go to the police. And there are many instances where either the police are part of the violence or the police see it and ignore it. Exactly. Are there no people in jail for being gay? No, none that I know of. The state is fully aware that doing that would be problematic. But there have been people who have been charged with sodomy. They've been charged with the sodomy law. And in those instances, it is seen as being used as a part of it. But one of the things, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm, I'm almost quite certain that the persecution to the full force of the law and so on has not taken place in Jamaica. And again, I, I must reiterate that that is not the fundamental anxiety. The violence, the, the murders and so on that are going on are real issues, and they are about a, a culture in which people enact that violence against them, and they do not feel that they have and have been shown not to have the protection of the police at all times on these issues. Do we know how many gay people have been killed? No, although we might. There's a group called JFLAG, which we also mm. fund in Jamaica, both offers hotline intervention services for people who are threatened, but also has been working on an advocacy level to try and reverse the anti-sodomy laws, or what are called buggery laws. Do a lot of people in Jamaica have Internet access? Yeah, Internet is quite present in Jamaica. So a lot of people do, a lot of poor people don't. But it must help the gay population feel less alone and know that there's freedom out there and they could get the information about HIV. Yeah, what I want to reiterate is that I, I know it's difficult to grasp that when you go to a place like Jamaica, you're in a very contemporary world in which there are classes in society, there are economic levels, and people live at different levels of that society. When we speak of violence in Jamaica, it's really important to understand that there's an epidemic of violence in Jamaica with almost 2,000 people murdered a year in a population of 2.5 million. There's a serious epidemic of violence. It is in that context that we see the violence against gays. But if we did the percentages on those, they would be really, really small. So women are in tremendous anxiety about violence against them. There's violence that comes from the police enacting violence against the poor people and so on. So there's a larger context of that kind of struggle that people are having. The violence that is related to homophobia is part of that larger picture. It's really necessary for that to be understood, to have a broader sense of it. There is a tremendous amount of information out there, but the work that is done to try and make sure that people are tested and people come out has to be one-on-one. -on -one. People know about this in the same way that we work with young people who may be heterosexual. Until you can work directly with them, until you can work with the sex workers, until you can work with those who work in the tourist industry and know them, identify them, and talk to them, and take them through the process, and they are willing to do that, then that information doesn't have the kind of impact that it needs to have. It's not a question of the information not being available. It's a question of having a closer contact and creating a culture within itself that is open 
to the kind of work that is needed to ensure adherence and protected activities. This issue of violence and HIV is a worldwide problem. In fact, many of the big funders like PEPFAR are really beginning to take a look at how we can look at HIV through a violence lens and understand that if people fear for their safety, their ability to, to engage in any kind of open, honest, and equal playing field discussion around safer practices is just non-existent, whether That's it be true. women or whether it be people living with HIV. That's very true. It sounds like the heart of the problem in Jamaica is the heterosexual male. They seem to be the people perpetrating the violence against both women and men who have sex with men. There are multiple problems that we're dealing with. The heart of the problem of homophobia and the impact that it has on the lives of gay people is certainly part of a, a kind of heterosexual patriarchal notion of sexuality. That has its roots in cultures that go way back. In many ways, part of the work it has to be to work through those and to get people to think beyond those constrictions and those constraints. So I think when we say that the heart of the problem is the heterosexual male, um, the truth is that many of the people who I, I worked with and you see on the side are straight men and they're dying of AIDS. Their narrative is, is tragic. And in fact, many of these straight men who are living with HIV are not coming out because of an anxiety about being stigmatized as gay. I don't know if we can do a great job of identifying who is the problem. I don't know if we can say they're the problem. I mean, I think the issue is, is that they're critical partners. Just to add to what Kwame is saying is that I think behaviorally we put people into certain boxes that actually they don't stay in. In particular, what we're seeing with straight men is that sometimes they are having sex, you know, with, that's why we refer to as men, as sex with men, yeah. as opposed to a gay identity. The other is, particularly in the Caribbean and elsewhere as well, is that such enormous amounts of sex tourism and commercial sex that there's a sort of big mixing pot. But it is critical that we include straight men as partners and really better understand what it is about their sense of masculinity and their sense of utility and their sense of being in relationship to people that is causing this amount of violence. Can we turn for a minute to uh, treatment? What's the HIV treatment situation like in Jamaica right now? Kwame, can you talk to them? It's a really interesting story. Until 2003, there was limited access to antiretroviral drugs, particularly for those who couldn't afford it. It was very expensive the morbidity that came from HIV AIDS, the deaths that happened, were really disturbingly high. Um, a simple example, one of the support groups that serve people living with the disease in Montego Bay told me that prior to 2003, when antiretroviral drugs became more available, they were looking at 18 to 20 deaths a month. After that, they were down to one or two deaths per month and sometimes no deaths at all. Um, I, I don't know if we can really understand how powerfully moving that statistic is. There are just so many dramatic differences. People who were living very difficult lives, emaciated, struggling with stroke after stroke, and then they've managed to have access to the antiretroviral drugs and their bodies were changed. They could go out to work. Things were completely different. So something happened then, and much of it is owed to agencies like MacAIDS and to the U.S. government even at the time for making the funds available for antiretroviral drugs to be had, even free for those people who needed it. So that has been a huge difference that people can get access to, to antiretroviral drugs, but that's not guaranteed forever. That 
that's one of the big challenges. The hope is that we'd continue to make those drugs available in Jamaica. That is one of the global challenges. South Africa is also guaranteed universal access. And the bottom line, as you know, is that when people take HIV drugs, they have to be on them for the rest of their lives. For life. the rest of their lives. And at this point, globally, we have 4 million people on drug, yeah. and 3 million of them are being supported by the U.S. government. We have seen in Jamaica several big donors like the World Bank, yeah. who had been giving money to HIV, who are now leaving. The Global Fund has actually been giving over a million dollars a year, which we've been participating in, but we have not seen new donors. One of the bigger issues I think that we have for the Caribbean as a region is there is not much industry there aside from tourism. As you can imagine, the tourism industry does not want to publicize the fact that there's a high HIV rate, and the tourism industry is not providing services to its employees the way the manufacturing industries in Africa are. I think we as a global community need to really get behind the Caribbean and both make sure that global fund dollars and other international dollars go there, but also help local businesses understand that this has to do with the health of their communities Absolutely. and their ability to provide workers for tourism. Nancy, when you mention all those numbers, the $1 million a year, the global fund and the PEPFAR, is that the money that's paying for the drugs that Jamaicans are taking? Yes. Basically, at this point, there are some local funds, but it's largely international funds. The other piece that, understandably, the governments do not want folks to know is there's just enormous amounts of poverty in the islands. You'll have one side of the island, like Montego Bay, which is fabulous and terrific, and then you go to Kingston, and the poverty that I saw in Kingston far outweighs the poverty that I saw in South Africa. Could you give me some details about that? What do you mean? Well, when you go into the Kingston Health Clinic, people would spend their entire days traveling to be at the health clinic and would wait, and the, the pharmacy had to close down at 11 o'clock in the morning because it had so many orders. Basically, anybody who saw a doctor and had a pharmacy prescription filled after 11 would have to either not get their medication or would have to travel back to the pharmacy, which often took three or four hours, the next day. There's very little healthcare infrastructure. I mean, the larger debate around HIV focuses a great deal on the fact that you can't just focus on HIV. You need to look at the health system overall. And the health system in Jamaica is very impoverished. Then the issue is, well, how do you treat a chronic terminal illness on top of that, on top of diabetes and heart disease and all the other issues people are facing? So Jamaica doesn't have a Paul Farmer who's out there with a no. great... <laughs> Some people have that kind of money, but that's not where they're putting it. Actually, we are funding the Clinton Global Initiative to work in a similar situation, but it has not attracted nearly the number of dollars that Haiti has. It's uh, ironic because Jamaica is much more on people's minds in terms of right. destination. I don't think it's ironic. I think it's purposeful. I think it's been to the Jamaican people's disadvantage that it's largely a tourism place. Yeah, but don't you think that's a two-sided sword? Because if it becomes known that it's such a mess in terms of HIV, then less tourists will go and then they'll lose money. And Right. So the trick is to create enough pressure on the governments and the international community that we focus enough to uh, basically equip folks with as much information and as much prevention materials as we can and to give them the best care we can. Is there anything going on to convince the government to change practices, to be more involved in HIV, and to change their feelings about homosexuality? I think there's a lot of work going on. I should say that, in my experience, the work that is being done by the Ministry of Health in trying to raise awareness and to do things on HIV-AIDS has been quite positive. I think increasingly many of these governments that we're talking about are governments that are struggling with tremendous debts 
working with the IMF. Therefore, there's this big challenge of how do we balance all of this and how do we make this work. But at the same time, there are people in government, there are leaders in the government who have spoken in very disturbing and I would say unfortunate ways and homophobic ways that are not very helpful in that situation. Now, organizations like JFLAG and many of the support groups that exist in Jamaica are constantly in dialogue with the government and are trying to lobby and see change done. Um, the extent to which that has made a difference is clear. It has made some difference, as you'd hear if you spoke to the JFLAG folks, but there's still a long way to go. Part of the long way to go is that the politician simply says that I'm getting pressure from my constituents who say that if I say anything that says it's okay for somebody to be gay, then they'll vote me out. All right? This is their argument. They put the blame on the society. And, of course, what we say to them is that, no, you need to take some leadership here, and that will help to change those views or those attitudes. There is a conversation going on, and that conversation is really important. But at the same time, as much as you might have this conversation and this dialogue, there are people living and dying with this disease. They desperately need the treatment. Many of them get the treatment, but they are too hungry to take the medication. Many of the people who I knew living with the disease and are on medication have only found work working with the ministry. That has helped them to look after their families and so on. The Ministry of Health has given them work to do. They've been doing tremendous work in awareness and so on. But not everybody has had that benefit. There are those real issues that have to do with poverty and that have to do with access to basic nutrition and basic living that come with the horror of poverty that we see around the world. Those things, too, need to be addressed. Do you know what percentage of people in Jamaica who need treatment are getting it? Nancy, do you know that? You have to define the word need. You could say according to WHO guidelines. Basically, there's two different issues. One is how available testing is, and then at what point do you intervene? My understanding is that it's on a lower level compared to other countries. But I should say that one of the developments that has happened in Jamaica, which is the positive thing in terms of treatment and testing, is up to a year ago at least, and I think it continues to be that way, any woman who is going to have a child in Jamaica in any of the medical facilities is tested for HIV AIDS. Much of the statistics that we get about HIV rates and so on and so forth comes through that source. That gives us a good sense of what is happening. And in many cases, since the advent of antiretroviral drugs, many of the children who are born haven't been tested, the mothers being tested. Fortunately, we've been able to find ways to save them from having the disease by putting the mothers on medication right away. And that has made a huge difference. So there's drugs available to treat mothers, yeah, pregnant if women? Somebody, if somebody is tested in any of the medical facilities, a mother, she will get that treatment, yes and the child is treated right away. It's a sign of progress. The real progress there is that the drugs are available because there's always been the interest in care at that level, but nothing could be done about it because of the cost of the drug. In terms of the women testing positive, I mean, what's the stigma like? All you have to do is imagine what would happen to you if you found out that you had HIV AIDS. It's going to change your life in many ways. But for women, the stigma does not extend to the question of homophobia, clearly. I think the culture is changing. Before, you'd be even hard-pressed to have somebody treat you. Nurses and doctors would be anxious about it. And I've seen this here in South Carolina, too. This was a huge problem. That has changed a great deal through education and through training. But families can ostracize you if you have the disease. 
there's sometimes shame associated with the fact that you've contracted the disease. That is only changed by people who are living with the disease who can come up front and say, I have the disease, and I'm saying I have the disease without shame and without fear of saying that. And there have been a number of examples of individuals. Rosie Stone, a Jamaican woman who was married to one of our great pollsters in Jamaica, a very famous man called Carl Stone, who died of the disease. It was secret when he died of the disease. She finally came out and said, I have the disease, and she wrote a book about it. And that was really remarkable, because here is somebody who was a um, middle to upper class woman who has come out, and she's worked with young children, and she said she has the disease. That has made a great difference in a society in which that realization that it can affect just anybody. I think that kind of work is important, which is why I think the Live Hope Love website has been so important in, in putting the voices and the faces of people with the disease out there to say anybody can be living with the disease. The question is, how do you live with it and how do you prevent yourself from getting the disease if you don't have it? Nancy, could you tell me how the Mac AIDS Fund got involved with Jamaica? Sure. We are a global funder of AIDS. We're actually Interestingly, the second largest corporate funder to AIDS worldwide, even though we're a cosmetic company, it's been something that since the founding of the company, MAC has been committed to. Internationally, we wanted to focus on the two areas that had the highest HIV rate. Those areas are South Africa, and unbeknownst to many people, the second area is the Caribbean. And we feel very strongly that it's an area of the world that there's been a lack of focus and lack of funding to help those who live in the Caribbean really combat the epidemic. What are some of the initiatives that you've been involved with? We've, over the last couple of years, funded about $7 million in a wide range of initiatives, everything from testing and treatment and care in the Dominican Republic as well as in Jamaica to advocacy around some of the issues, the shame and stigma issues that are preventing people from accessing HIV care. For instance, Jamaica, we see homophobia, and it's keeping people away from HIV testing and driving high-risk sex underground. And as a result, for instance, Jamaica, men who have sex with men, has an HIV rate that is double the amount in the Dominican Republic where we see less of that. We've also funded a group called the Pulitzer Center to bring media and news attention to the Caribbean and begin to take a look at what the issues are surrounding HIV in the Caribbean. The general state of journalism, unfortunately, as well as the lack of resources in the Caribbean, has meant that there's very little reporting on health issues in the Caribbean, particularly HIV. I noticed that the Glass Closet is a new site and went up a few months ago. Uh, tell me a little bit about that initiative. We funded a portion of it, basically the Pulitzer Center, which is a nonprofit news organization, created a portal on the web that combines information on homophobia within the Caribbean and some of the other projects they've been doing. Our funding is HIV-specific, although in order to really tackle that issue, you really have to take on issues around shame and stigma and homophobia. How did a poet get involved in AIDS advocacy? How did it come to be that you created this beautiful site with poetry and photographs of people living with HIV? And I've always written about HIV AIDS as a writer. I remember in about 1989, I was fascinated, needless to say, by where HIV AIDS was in the world at that time. I think it was 88, 89, I saw a Time magazine with a picture of a woman sitting on a suitcase in the middle of this veld in Kenya. The caption said that she was the sole survivor of her village. Her entire village had been wiped out by AIDS. And I was riveted and mesmerized by this woman and by this picture. I eventually wrote a play and, and then a series of plays on HIV AIDS, particularly in developing countries. 
and I've written poetry about it. So this was part of my engagement with what I think are the human realities that surround us. But to do a project like this one, I probably would not have thought to do it. This is a full-blown journalistic exercise, going in, interviewing many people and so on. I was approached by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting to do the piece. I felt that I would do it because it was about Jamaica, and Jamaica is there and close to me. I also felt that I would have access to stories that other people would not have. And I also felt it was important for a Jamaican to tell that story, because I think too often... Stories are ignored or stories are not told with a kind of intimacy and a knowledge of the space. Sometimes they are exploitative. And I wanted to make sure that the story was told honestly, but told with a genuine appreciation of the human realities of that country. So to do it became a, a, a challenge, but also a very exciting opportunity. Working with what I think are triumphs and tragedies of human life and finding art in the midst of it is part of my work. I've always been doing that kind of work, whether it's HIV AIDS, whether it's Jim Crow laws in South Carolina. Whatever it is, I'm going to explore it and try and find the truth in it. I think if you've seen the piece, Kwame's ability to put a human face on the epidemic as well as the emotion and the poetry, really is very effective in, I think, both internally educating about HIV and also externally. That's, again, why we funded the Pulitzer Center, because that's the type of work that's really not getting out there. The Pulitzer Center, as I understand it, really thought, who would be the best storyteller here? And in terms of Jamaica, the best storyteller is this very gifted poet. It's really moving. As you saw, they brought a photojournalist in who took some really stunning images. Just very profound in terms of the level of desperation and the level of need. When I looked at it, there was a lot of death, and it was so tragic in many, many areas. Have things changed in the last two years at all? Would it be a more hopeful situation if you went back and did the same thing, do you think? It's an interesting question to ask. On one level, it cannot be more hopeful because the numbers are still what they are, and especially for men who sleep with men, there's just no way that I can say it's more hopeful. What I can say, though, is that I'm in touch with most of the people that I interviewed, and they're living still. I'm in touch with those who are are working in the field, and they are all still working hard in the field. I've taken this project back to Jamaica. Just in the summer, we did a presentation of it, and we had all the people who did the interviews and so on. They came out. We had a panel discussion. It was wonderful to see the openness and the willingness to talk about these issues and to see the tremendous concern that is still there. There's more than interest and care in Jamaica. It's not a callous attitude. It's something that I connect with and I I understand. But there's a tremendous amount of work still to be done because, yes, we are still getting instances and stories of people who have been brutalized because of being gay, people who have continued to be filing to leave Jamaica and to have refugee status here in the United States because of homophobia in Jamaica. Can somebody get that? Is that common? Can you get refugee status because of that? You can and have. And from my understanding, many of the requests have come from on that front have come from Jamaica. Absolutely. I mean, the the threat of death is not a casual thing. There's still a tremendous amount of legal work that is being done to ensure that America recognizes that in many more instances as cases in point. But the State Department has recognized that in the past and continues to do so. Well, thank you. And Nancy, before we go, could you tell me what are your next steps? I noticed there was a presentation and panel at the CUNY Graduate Center of Journalism at the end of September. Are you doing other kinds of panel discussions? What other initiatives are you planning to do in the next year? We hosted a panel at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico City. What we're trying to do is get the word out to donors 
as well as international advocates to basically try and attract talent and dollars to the Caribbean. What we are thinking about doing actually is hosting another event with the Pulitzer Center with donors, again, to not only advocate funding alternative media, but looking at the issues within the Caribbean around HIV. These are tough times. The vast majority of us have decreased portfolios. Grants and free money is hard to come by, but we really believe, and I think have shown through the grant making that we've done, that with a relatively small amount, you can make an enormous difference within the Caribbean, as well as really make the Caribbean part of the international dialogue on HIV. And again, Africa is an extraordinarily important place. We've done an enormous amount of funding in Africa, but it's sort of ironic, as you would say, that because the Caribbean is in our backyard, because people often associate it with beautiful beaches, and there are, in fact, beautiful beaches and great resorts, that this really horrible issue around health care has been overlooked. And if you look historically, Jamaica also many years ago had a very tough problem with sickle cell anemia, which was effectively addressed by a local community with help from the international community. So we're really trying to use that as a model and would really sort of a call to action to all of your listeners to go to the websites of these various groups to get involved, to write letters to the local Jamaican politicians, and if you can, to send dollars. The Clinton Global Foundation is working in the Caribbean, and you could always direct dollars towards them. This group, uh, Jamaican PFLAG, is also doing work there, and the Pulitzer Center. So there's lots of good work to do. Every dollar makes a difference. People's attention and concern makes a big interest. And also, I want to congratulate both the Pulitzer Center and Kwame for really a, a terrific piece of work, which I don't know if we've mentioned, but actually won an Emmy for the website and the work that has been done. So it's created a lot of attention around an area and an issue that's really been ignored. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebodypro.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been HIV Frontlines from The Body Pro. Be sure to check in frequently at thebodypro.com for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with researchers and healthcare professionals. 